You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, do you know him and have seen him? Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for another week that you have brought us here together to be assembled under your word. We, your people, long to be under your word. We pray now that you would speak through it, and that you would transform us by your word, through your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. And it is good to see all of you this evening. Man, I just meeting with J.J. Johnson this week for for lunch, and we've just talked about how from time to time we say up here that you can only backslide so far in six days, right? Uh, we need to be with each other on, on Sundays to re- encourage each other in the word. And JJ was just saying like how, how great it is to see people, see you all on Sunday evenings. That it's like, yeah, of course. We can only ba- backslide so far in six days. So yes, I am so glad to see all of you that we are pursuing Christ together here in his word with his people. Well, we have been going through John's gospel together. We're in chapter 14, and we are getting to what feels like the beginning of the end. Oftentimes, people's last words or near last words uh, are instructions. George Washington is reported to have said on his deathbed, he said, I am just going. Have me decently buried and do not let my body be put into the vault in less than three days after I am dead. He was apparently afraid that he was going to be buried alive. Uh, So he wanted to stay uh, unburied for three days. He asked if his assistant understood these words. He said, do you understand? His assistant said, yes. And then he said, tis well. And then he died. 
William Henry Harrison, another president, told Vice President John Tyler, he said, Sir, I wish you to understand the true principles of government. I wish them to be carried out. I ask for nothing more. And he died. Teddy Roosevelt said, please put out the light. And he died. Uh, Sometimes uh, last words can be not instructions, but reflections. Sir Isaac Newton was thinking aloud on his deathbed, and he said, I don't know what I may seem to the world, but as to myself, I seem to have been only like a boy, playing on the seashore and diverting myself now and then, and finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than the ordinary, whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. And then he died. Nostradamus reportedly said this as his last words, tomorrow at sunrise I shall no longer be here. And he was right. Uh, Well, for the next four chapters in John, Jesus is going to begin what many call his farewell discourse or his farewell teaching. It begins in the same upper room where we saw him wash his disciples' feet last week in chapter 13, which is why you'll often hear this sometimes referred to, these chapters, verses 14 through 17, as the upper room discourse. He knows that within 24 hours, he will be dying on a Roman cross. So this is, in many ways, a dying man's last words, full of instructions, full of commands for how to understand and believe and live when he is no longer here, but also full of reflection and even personal prayer. And we, John's readers, get to enter into all of this, his commands and his reflections and his deepest inner turmoil even. But it's not just a deathbed reflection like we tend to think of deathbed, last words in modern days. These kinds of farewell discourses, final teaching, teachings were a well-known and even common genre and even within the Bible. Jacob has a similarly long speech in his last words and his sons uh, as he's dying in Genesis 49. Joshua does the same thing with the entire nation of Israel in Joshua 22 through 24. David addresses Solomon and the entire nation before he dies. Of, of course, the major difference in all of those instances, whether it's George Washington or Isaac Newton or Jacob or Joshua or David, is that none of those people expected to come back. And so as we spend the next many weeks in these four chapters, Jesus is farewell discourse, we can't forget where this thing is headed. Tonight, as he's speaking, is Thursday. Tomorrow, he'll be dying on a cross, his bloody death. But Sunday is coming, isn't it? This leads one pastor I've read to say this, that Genesis ends with Joseph's death. Deuteronomy ends with Moses's death. Joshua ends with Joshua's death. But the Gospels end with Jesus's resurrection, and that changes everything, doesn't it? So let's get into this first half of chapter 14 together. And speaking of death and resurrection, I'm sure that you've heard these first couple of verses read at countless Christian funerals. I've even read this and reflected together with my own dying grandmother on her deathbed in the hospital two and a half years ago. These first sweet verses of John chapter 14. So we'll hang our thoughts in John 14 on three headings tonight. The place of Christ, the way of Christ, and the works of Christ. 
So the, first of all, the place of Christ. Verse 1 isn't in a vacuum. Jesus didn't just magically appear from like uh, washing the disciples' feet and then he's like standing at a funeral, delivering a eulogy or something, uh, saying, let not your hearts be troubled. No, he's saying this in direct response to what he had just told Peter at the end of chapter 13, that Peter would ultimately deny and reject Jesus three times tomorrow night. So perhaps the other disciples are hearing this and they're thinking, wait, if Peter's faith is going to fail, will, will all of our faith fail? But also he's addressing them and speaking to them in this way because he had just also told them in verse 33 of chapter 13, he said, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So they're perhaps thinking, wait, like, where's he going? Why, why can't we come with him? This, this doesn't make any sense. They are troubled. The same word that Jesus is said to be in verse 21 of chapter 13, after he tells Judas that Judas will betray him. He is troubled by this. And the same word and emotion that Jesus was working through in chapter 12, verse 27, as Jesus sees his coming cross, as he envisions and imagines the wrath of God poured out on millennia of human beings directed toward him, squarely upon himself as a substitute. If anyone should be troubled, it ought to be Jesus. And if on any night in Jesus' ministry, Jesus could have asked the disciples to comfort him, to encourage him, to serve him, this would certainly be it. But he's just the one who's washed their feet. And now he is saying, guys, do not let your hearts be troubled. Don't let, don't let your hearts be confused or anxious or sad or afraid. Believe God Believe in me also. We've seen over and over again through John's gospel that Jesus speaks the words of God and he does the works of God. He has said that before Abraham even existed, you know, like 2,000 years ago, not only did he exist, but that he was and is God. So, if all of this is true, believe God and believe me also. Trust me which makes all the difference, doesn't it? And how we deal with crisis as it's unfolding in front of us is who is with us and especially if there's an expert with us. Like if you're, like somehow if you ever get lost and alone like in Jurassic Park, it makes all the difference if Dr. Grant is with you, right? Like someone who knows and understands dinosaurs. Like, if you're trying to bring Apollo 13 home, you had better go wake up Gary Sinise from his drunken stupor. Because he knows we can get him into the simulator and he, only he can understand like the, what the circumstances and conditions are that the astronauts are dealing with. He, he knows. We need his advice. You need experts in crisis or your toast. But Jesus is reminding his disciples that they have the highest expert of any field available to them. So don't freak out here, guys. Let not your hearts be troubled, but trust me. Jesus is saying that I am with you, so that's all that matters. But then the disciples, I think he's addressing their confusion. Perhaps they're like looking at each other one by one and looking at him with confused looks because he's saying, yeah, that's all well and good if you're here with us, but you just said that you're leaving. 
right? Like Dr. Grant telling the two whiniest kids in movie history, like if he, if he were to tell them like, good luck guys, I'm out of here. Good luck with the velociraptors. They'd be toast, right? So why would Jesus say this? Why would he say, I'm leaving, but let not your hearts be troubled? Well, because his leaving is actually for their good, which he'll then unpack for the rest of chapter 14, and we'll keep considering next week together. Where is he going, and why, and how could it possibly be for their good? Well, he says in verse 2, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. Jesus says that he's going away to heaven, the place that we've seen many times in John's gospel, that this is the place where he's come from, the place that doesn't have all of the darkness and opposition of the world. It's the place of God. And he's going there to prepare a place for his sheep, so that he can then return and take them home, take them to the place where he'll be. Perhaps you know of a family, or perhaps you yourself have uh, been a part of like a cross-country move, and like the father or the mother or the husband or wife like goes ahead of the family to take care of things, get things in order. This happened with a good buddy of mine, Trent Hunter. He was one of the pastors at Desert Springs, and he took another job as, as a senior pastor in South Carolina. And they wanted him to start at the beginning of April last year. The only problem was his kids were finishing school. And they were going to finish around mid-May. So he went ahead. He, he, he drove the U-Haul with a, a lot of their stuff across country. And he got the house ready. And he started work. And then after school was over, he, he flew home. And he then drove Christy and the kids across the country. I think this is what Jesus is talking about. He's what he's describing. He's going to where the rest of his family is eventually going to be. Those that, who John 1.12 tells us, those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Jesus is going to prepare a place for the family, a place for the rest of the kids to finally come and join the rest of the family to be with the Father. He's going to prepare a place. Now, now, when the King James translation came out in 1611, the word mansion, it meant like a modest dwelling place. It didn't mean some like massive palatial estate. So the King James, perhaps this is the way that you have read this verse perhaps many times in your life. It, it read, in my father's house are many mansions. And unfortunately, the word stayed the same for the next 400 years or so, but the meaning of that word changed, didn't it? While most modern translations have changed it, I think more rightly to read rooms, so in my father's house are many rooms, I think most of us with long-term familiarity with the Bible even subconsciously read that as mansions. Like we even sing sometimes, in mansions of glory and endless delight. And that's fine. I don't think we need to rewrite that lyric. Uh, but I think the mansion is not the point. And we can really dwell on the mansion part. It's not the surroundings of the place that makes it worth going to. It's not just a better version of the life that you never really got to experience on earth. Like you never really were satisfied with your house on earth. But good news, you get to go to heaven and get this awesome mansion. It makes... And this mansion, this 
the, the things that you get when you get there. That's what makes it worth going to. No, the reason why heaven is worth looking forward to is whose house you'll be living in. The Father's house. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. It's got a big, big table with lots and lots of food. Only those who grew up in the 90s in youth group are laughing right now. And if you were before or after, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But uh, our, our heavenly hope is that of fully receiving, fully getting, fully experiencing the presence of God. So in that sense, it is just a better version of the life you never really got to experience on earth. And that God has created you to know him deeply. Not just to know interesting things about him, but to know him personally, experientially, deeply. To be satisfied in him. And we can get glimpses of that. We can get glimmers of that. We can even experience knowing God on this earth. And as we mature and grow as Christians, we move more deeply. But there is that never going away, always present reality of our own sin. Always obstructing, always tainting. And so this is what we look forward to, where sin is no more. The presence of sin is gone. The temptation towards self-worship is gone. Just God. Whereas we'll see next week in verse 20 of chapter 14, in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Now, the idea of just God shouldn't be like, oh no, that sounds really boring. It sounds horrible to stand around for like a trillion years with that. No! This is why one of my favorite parts of any book out there is the last battle in the Chronicles of Narnia when Lewis describes Fledge the horse who is now turned into Jewel the unicorn. And Lewis says it was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and he neighed and then he cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for for all my life, though I never knew it until now. This is what Jesus describes and why he can say with such confidence, let not your hearts be troubled. I know where I'm going. I know where you are going and I'm going to prepare a place so that I can take you there. Beloved, let not your hearts be troubled. There will be sickness, be pain, doubt, death in this world. If, if perhaps you're heart wasn't moved towards being troubled a bit as Clint was praying for all of the brokenness that we are observing in the world today. We wouldn't be feeling, right? We, it's, it's right for us to wrestle through these things. Sickness, pain, death, it's coming for all of us. It's even coming for the disciples. Nearly all of them would die a gruesome martyr's death, and yet he tells them to not let their hearts be troubled. Why? Well, because this life is not the end. And as we read earlier from Isaiah 25, where Isaiah saw a day, where Isaiah sees that he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The Lord God, 
not just like he's going to send some angels out there because he doesn't want to get messy. The Lord God himself will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this, Christians, this is what we will say on that day. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him through years of pain, sadness, death, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So in the present, cry, struggle, mourn, but as we'll see in a moment, pray and trust that the right one is at the helm of the universe. And if that's the case in Christians, if that's where we're going, then Spurgeon is right to say, the Christian is the most contented man in the world, but he is the least contented with the world. He is like a traveler in an inn, perfectly satisfied with the inn and its accommodation, but considering it as an inn. Quite putting, or putting quite out of all consideration the idea of making it his home. If Jesus doesn't leave, if he doesn't go to prepare a place, and if he doesn't return to take his sheep home, if he just leaves us in this world, if he just leaves us at the inn, right? A hotel is fun. It's kind of the novelty of it is kind of interesting for a night or two. But after like three nights at a hotel, everyone is done, right? It's just you're ready to get home. This world was not meant for eternity. It's like a hotel room, preparing us for a little while so that we might experience God's graciousness and his kindness towards us. But it's never meant for home. This is the place of Christ, the very reason that he has come, that the triune God might fully dwell with his people for eternity. But how do we, his people, get there? He'll explain. Humans get to the place of Christ by, now secondly, the way of Christ. Verse 4, he says, and you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, no, uh, no we don't, Lord. We don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas, like most times that he appears in the Gospels, he wants to believe, but he just doesn't understand. Maybe he was like the Jews in chapter 7 who thought Jesus was talking about like going away to Greece or something, heading off to Turkey. Jesus is going to move away and he's going to buy this huge house He's going to prepare lots of rooms for his disciples to join him, like somewhere on like the Spanish coast or something, where they can all enjoy life together for the rest of their days. That sounds wonderful, Jesus, but we don't know how to get there. If you, if you don't tell us where this Spanish villa is going to be someday, how will we know where to find you? How will we get there? To which Jesus says, I am the way to get there. I am the road that you will travel on to then arrive at my father's house. And he is the way to God precisely because he is the truth of God and he is the life of God. He is the way to God because he only says what his father says to him. God the Son, Jesus, as one commentator says, is God the Father's gracious self-disclosure. 
The way that we understand God is because God has graciously self-disclosed himself to us in the person of Christ. He is the word made flesh as we saw in chapter 1. He is the truth of God and because he is the truth of God, he is the way to God. His disciples ought to have understood this. This is why Jesus gets so frustrated with Philip when Philip asks Jesus to show them the Father. He's like, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I am the truth of God. But he's also the life of God. Or as he said in chapter 5, verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Or as we saw Jesus say just before he raised Lazarus from the dead, that he is the resurrection and the life. The reason that Jesus is the way to God is that he himself is the life of God. There is no life apart from himself. The road to life runs directly through him. Or more specifically, as we'll see, the road to life runs directly through his cross. It's almost as if, like if you were able to drive a car to God the Father, you would drive down a road that perhaps gets bumpy, and then perhaps the road starts to slowly incline around a hill, and then you come up onto the top of a hill, and the way to God the Father is to drive your car directly through this old rugged cross. Like one of those giant redwoods or sequoias or something you've seen pictures of that you can, or maybe you've driven through yourself. You can drive straight through that thing. And driving through that thing not just means that you're driving through his death, but that as you drive through that thing, it means a personal death as well. A death of your old life and its old desires and its primary identities. These have come to die there as you drive through that old rugged cross. But to drive through in freedom, in the freedom of the cleansing of his blood on your behalf, his cleansing of your greatest inadequacies, of all the times you have lost your temper and responded in anger, of all the times that you have used others in selfishness or in, for dishonest gain, of all the times that you have valued and worshipped yourself above the God who has created you. This is what he has come to cleanse you from. And as gruesome as it may sound and perhaps flippant, when you're driving through the cross, it's like driving through a giant car wash with one of those sheets of washing soapy water, only this time you're driving through one of those sheets of blood. But driving through maybe like with the sunroof down and the windows open. So not just the exterior of the car might be cleaned, but you yourself might be washed in the cleansing power of his blood. But your car and you, you don't stay in this place of gore and of repulsion. The place of death is the cleansing place of life. So that as you like emerge through the cross, then you're like, your car like jumps through in like a uh, slow motion Dukes of Hazard, amazing, like flying out of this empty tomb. Death and then resurrection life so that finally when your wheels hit the ground, you're off in resurrection life. He is the way of God precisely because he is the truth and the life of God. 
But let's camp out just a minute on this verse. Verse 6. Because presently, John 14, 6 might just be the most culturally insensitive verse in the entire Bible. The world hears a Christian quote this verse. Or perhaps you're sitting here this evening and you're hearing Jesus say what he just said in chapter 14 and you're thinking, this Christ or you Christians are so narrow. How arrogant of you to claim that you have the only way to God. As if anyone could know with absolute truth of the way to God, the world would even just be a lot better. A lot more peaceful if we could just tolerate each other's faiths. I mean, after all, no one religion is better than the other. We're all climbing up different roads on the same mountain to one day meet God, the same God. Perhaps you've heard the illustration of the blind men who are feeling this elephant and trying to describe what the elephant is like. And one man feels the trunk and he says, this, this animal, an elephant, is uh, long and narrow and skinny. It's, it's not altogether different than a snake. The other, though, is feeling an elephant's legs and he feels this and he says, this, this, the elephant, this animal, is like a, it's like a tree trunk, large and strong and powerful. But then another blind man, he's describing as he's feeling the elephant's ears, he describes an elephant. It must be an animal that is just large and flat, flexible. The argument is that the religions of the world have a small grasp on certain truths of spiritual reality, but no one can see the entire picture. What's the problem with this illustration? Well, it of itself, someone who tells and uses this illustration is actually unbelievably arrogant. The only way that we understand this story is if the storyteller has a vantage point that the blind men don't. Meaning, the storyteller can see the entire spiritual universe, right? He claims to be able to see the entire elephant, while the blind, silly, religious folks of the world, they can't see. Those who are accusing the religious nutcases of claiming to understand truth better than others are actually claiming to understand truth better than others, those who hold such tolerance views are basically saying what? That you must tolerate all religions as equally valid. The problem is most who hold this position aren't being intellectually honest. They're essentially saying just, just believe. It doesn't really matter what you believe. There's nothing actually really truthful perhaps about any of these. There's little nuggets of truth perhaps and that's all well and good. Who cares what you believe? There's some glimmer of truth in whatever this is that you believe so it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as it gives you meaning. But here's the other thing about the elephant. The blind men were all telling the truth, weren't they? That None of these men described anything that was contradictory to the other. They were just experiencing some part of the elephant. But an apple can't be red and blue at the same time. Even if two people perceive it to be true. It can't be. Or to put more succinctly, one author writes, the major world religions disagree on virtually every major issue 
including the nature of God, the nature of man, sin, salvation, heaven, hell, and creation. They all can't be true at the same time. So it's actually not that arrogant for Jesus to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is God's gracious self-disclosure. You see how all of the major world religions can't all be true at the same time? Muhammad, Buddha, every other religious leader who has ever lived has offered profound advice for finding God. But none of them have ever said something like, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. None of them has ever claimed to die for you and certainly none of them have ever been raised to new life for you. Jesus doesn't point to a way, but he says that he is the way. He himself is the way. So as we've said in thinking through Jesus' claim to be the door to God in John 10, the shock of that verse where he says, I am the gate, I am the door in John 10, the shock of that verse to our modern ears is, wait, wait, Jesus, that's pretty arrogant. There's only one door? Well, the shock of the narrative of the Bible is, wait, there's a door? Like, there's a way for we self-worshipping self-seeking, self-destructive humans to have access to the Lord God Almighty, to experience life with God through the forgiveness of our sins? Incredible. What grace, what kindness of God to allow for a way to himself. But we don't like that. Or to paraphrase another writer, if God gave us 10,000 ways to himself, we would want 10,001 never content, never humble to hear and receive God's revelation of himself, always pushing and kicking back against the love of God through Christ. We'll send out a couple more blog and book-length resources for you to think through this issue. This is is difficult. I don't want to spend like five minutes on this and just say, so that all makes sense, so now we can move on. Like this is, there are some implications to all of this that are difficult What of those who don't believe or hear even of Jesus? Those are difficult questions. I don't want to just fly past those. So we'll hopefully uh, give you some good resources for you to think through this week. We'd love to chat with you personally about some of these questions uh, over lunch or coffee in the next few weeks. But here's the question for us all as we sit here and as we hear Jesus say what he said in John 14, 6. Have you had your sins forgiven? Do you know that you are on the way to God through Jesus' truth and life? Have your sins been forgiven by your present and active faith in the Lord Jesus? Do you know God personally, intimately because of him? Are you, despite difficult circumstances, even tragedy in your life, Are you swimming in the love of God because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus on your behalf? I pray you are, and any Christian in this room would love to talk to you about any of these questions, any of these issues with you, about what it means to have life in Christ, to be washed by the power of his blood We've seen the place of Christ. 
We've seen that he is the way of Christ, the way to God. But in this beginning of his farewell address, Jesus now needs to to tell his disciples about the works of Christ. We've already mentioned Philip's question, but let's pick it back up in verse 8 together. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, like, I feel like with hands, or his head in his hands, like, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak in my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So just in case, Jesus hasn't been clear thus far in John's gospel. Jesus is going to make double sure that his disciples haven't missed what he's been saying all along about himself. That he doesn't just speak for God. He's not just God's ambassador to the world. He's, not, he's like, like Dennis Rodman speaking to North Korea on behalf of the United States or something. It's true that he speaks for God the Father, but much, much more. He says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. I mean, the disciples are good Jews here, right? Like if what he just said about himself isn't true, they ought to revolt, grab him, drag him out of the city and kill him. And indeed, that's exactly what the Jewish leadership will do in less than 24 hours. But even if you don't believe my words, Jesus says, remember what I've done. Remember the signs and believe. Like, guys, give, give more than just a moment's magic tricks reflection upon the meaning of the messianic kingdom's reality. And all of these things that I have done to point you to the messianic kingdom, the reality of what it meant that I changed the water to the wine, or the new exodus meaning of providing loaves to you in the wilderness or the future resurrection of all people as I was pointing you when I raised Lazarus from the dead. Remember these things. Reflect on what they meant, not just that it was a cool trick and believe. Look at the signposts and then come to me. The thing to which the signposts were pointing to all along. But then startlingly, Jesus says something incredible in verse 12. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. Now this can't mean that whoever believes in me will do like more spectacular works than I do. Like it's hard to imagine anything more spectacular than raising dead people to life. Right? Like, I can't imagine much more than that. But that these works will be greater precisely because Jesus has gone away to the Father. The signs and works of Jesus, even just his plain old humdrum teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God, could not fully accomplish their meaning, could not fully accomplish their intention until his death, until his resurrection and his ascension. But now, 
Now that all that's happened, now that we are on this side of his cross and his resurrection, now dead people are coming to life every day when they hear, when they consider and reflect on his greatest signpost, his cross. People who have experienced a greater exodus from a greater slave master than Pharaoh, the greater slave master of their own flesh and sin, are now on their way in a new exodus toward a land that God has prepared for them. And they are daily being fed by Christ on his word, which sustains us. People all over the world throughout the centuries have been cleansed, not just externally like these giant ritual cleaning pots that were filled with water, but they have been filled and cleansed from the inside and filled and cleansed with this amazing banquet-like good wine of the kingdom. All of this, like Jesus says in Matthew 11, He says that the least in the kingdom of heaven would ultimately turn out to be greater than the greatest prophet, John the Baptist. Did you know that? Jesus says that the least person, I don't even know how we measure that, but the person who is least in this new covenant kingdom of Christ is greater than the greatest prophet of the old covenant. Why? Because of their full and realized life in Christ. And Jesus is saying the same thing here, that greater works will all of us do and experience in this new covenant. The boring and everyday works of the church are greater than Jesus physically causing a blind man to see. Of course, blind men are seeing every day, aren't they? When someone comes to see Christ for who he is. But what are the signs, the works of God that he works through his church today? Sometimes, miraculously, I think. But primarily, what are the signs? What we saw last week. What, what did Jesus tell his disciples that would be the signs? He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. What are they? These huge, amazing, spectacular works? Nope. If you have love for one another. Unbelievable. Miraculous working of God kingdom pointing signs of love for one another, pointing towards the messianic kingdom. And it's to this reality that Jesus then tells us to pray and to ask God for, in verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now praying in Jesus' name is not the send button on your outlandish email request to God. God, give me a new car, a bigger house, my best life now. In Jesus' name, send. Now, that, that's really no different than just like some magic word. That's, that's like uh, a new house, a bigger car, a private jet, and hobbledy-boobledy, alakazam, Jesus, send. That's not what he is saying. Praying in Jesus' name means praying through him as our mediator, as our intercessor, and praying the things that Jesus wants. Remember, he says, I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He's about to reflect in this for the next several chapters, and we'll get to hang out 
and what this means for us in these next several chapters, especially in his high priestly prayer of John chapter 17, but what it means to get wrapped up into the triune life of God. But it's not that as we grow in our understanding and faith in Jesus, that we grow in our ability to conform God to like give him our wildest desire. And we grow in faith, so now we can have this like magic power to conform God to give us what we really want. No. As we grow in our understanding of Jesus, he conforms our wildest desires to actually be his desires. We begin to more and more and in growing faith and confidence in Jesus' name, ask that his kingdom might come in our lives and in this world on earth as it is in heaven, trusting and asking that he might actually let not our hearts be troubled. Lord Jesus, in your name, give us peace and confidence that our hearts might not be troubled, even when, as I go out from this place and go back to the reality of pain, of difficulty, of sadness, Give me trust, Lord Jesus, we pray, as our lives are wrapped up into his and moving toward eternity where he will swallow up death forever because God is there, we ask confidently in his name. Let's pray together. And if if you know this prayer and would like to join me, pray that you would join me, even verbally now, and His model prayer for us, this Lord's Prayer. Might we pray together in Jesus' name. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.